October 12th, 1985. Dog carcass in alley this morning. Tire tread on burst stomach. This city's afraid of me. I've seen its true face. The streets are extended gutters, and the gutters are full of blood. And when the drains finally scab over, all the vermin will drown. The accumulated filth of all their sex and murder will foam up around their waists. And all the whores and politicians will look up and shout, save us. And I'll whisper, no. Welcome to Rage Worth Watching, where we're working our way through the history of films that rage against the machine. Today, we're discussing the 2009 film based on probably the most popular graphic novel of all time, Watchmen, written by Alan Morris. I'm your host, and I believe a dead podcaster has the same number of molecules as a live podcaster, so what's the difference? My co-host is Guy, who seems to think this podcasting racket is just one big joke on humanity. Yeah. Hello, Guy. Hello, Ron. So, wow, you know, sometimes we try to provide some context before the movie. <laughs> the context for this is my entire life. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> when, when we, you know, we're about the same age. So when we were teenagers, um, I got into comics right before Frank Miller and Alan Moore exploded and just changed everything about comics, right? And I was hugely into Daredevil, the you know, and, and everything that came from there from Frank Miller. And also, I mean, before Watchmen came along, Alan Moore, his first big thing in the U.S. was The Swamp Thing, which is an amazing series if, you, if you've never read it. And he, he had a long history in Britain before that, you know, and then he got noticed in, in, in the... And based on all this success, he got the opportunity to do Watchmen. And I have, uh, from the time, things I bought that came out at the time, you know, full-length comic magazines talking about the Watchmen, you know, explainer. But I have everything. I have dozens of things about Watchmen and probably more than 100 collections of Alan Moore comics and things about Alan Moore. So. So it's hard to even give context because it's just everything. (laughs) But Alan Moore early on in his career made a specialty out of taking old characters, comic characters, and revitalizing them. So one of the first ones he did that with was an incredible comic known in the U.S. as Miracle Man. And he took some old like 1950s characters and updated them where it turned out that their 1950s styles memories were implanted in their brains and it was all anyway but it's an amazing comic and it's one of the the first things he did where he revitalized things so and then he revitalized swamp thing and turned it from a kind of weird uh horror comic into just something really amazing Mm. that sort of set him up for Watchmen. So what happened was DC had the had bought the rights to these char- to a company called Charleston. And they had a bunch of characters, one of whom was the question. 
and one of whom, so that's basically Rorschach, <laughs> and one of whom was like a Dr. Manhattan, like character, et cetera. And he, so originally the idea was that he would do this once again with the Charleston characters, right? Or he would do a series where he updated these characters. But as they developed it, they realized that it was going to work better if they did original characters. Hmm. But the characters, if you if you look at the the source that they came to, or, or you know, you can clearly see the direct connection from the Charleston characters to to what they did. Night Owl is you look very Batman like in some scenes. Yeah, no, he, clearly he is. Now, this here's a funny thing, which is in the background materials. If you watch, you know, the background materials for this movie, Dave Gibbons, who is the artist and also the co-creator. I mean, he and Alan Moore. I mean, Alan Moore was absolutely the creative force, but Dave Gibbons played a huge role and added a lot to it. And Night Owl was the character he created at age 14. <laughs> and so hmm. when they were looking at the Charleston list of characters and converting them into Watchmen, he said, well, there's one, you know, we're kind of missing a Batman character. And when I was 14... I created this Batman-like character, and Alan Moore's like, well, let's use it. <laughs> so that's where, that's where Night Owl came from. <laughs> so they showed in the, in the background documentary uh, at 14 what he had drawn. It's amazing. I mean, he, at 14, he was already a great artist. So Watchmen was not just a revitalizing of these Charleston characters, but it was a commentary on superhero characters right and it was really the first at least the first big breakthrough comic that said what would life be like if superheroes actually existed mm -hmm. and you know you always have this weird thing where there's spider-man or there's i love spider-man and i love batman but they basically live in our world but nothing else has changed right yeah and this comic and, and Alan Moore and, and such was saying, look, if we actually had these godlike characters, things would change. Oh, yeah. So that's, you know, kind of the background to all this. A anything else you want to add before we jump into the actual movie? Because I'll just never stop talking. About <laughs> no, uh, when, when you said uh, when you said this movie is kind of like my whole life, I. Uh, I laughed because for me, it's in a different way. The movie set in the mid eighties and, uh, you know, that was when I was in high school and I think when you were in high school, a lot of the stuff in this movie that people who weren't around back then might not get, you know, a, a lot of it, uh, registered with me. In fact, it, the very first scene, but we'll get to that moment. <laughs> yeah. I will say right up front, one of the things I appreciate, even though in the movie, and I think in the comic too, but in the movie especially, they actually use the names and characterizations of a bunch of media people and stuff. Mm -hmm. But and you've heard me complain before that I really don't like it when real life news people show up in these movies. I, I think it's distracting and and kind of kind of almost ethically wrong. Mm -hmm. In this case, they do use the names and likenesses of real people, but they're all played by actors, right? And so. For me, that's okay. Like that, that provides a, a level of removal that, that doesn't have the issue for me of, oh, you know, even though like Wolf Blitzer in Mission Impossible Fallout, you know, there's a great little bit with him in there. I still have mm -hmm. issues with those. Well, yeah. If, if, if the celebrity himself appears 
then it seems like it's almost a tacit endorsement of whatever. You know, yeah, and it's a distraction and, and all that. Yeah. One thing I can hold say up front, though, just that I think a lot of the makeup in this movie is terrible. <laughs> and so really- all these people, and especially Nixon and others, who are supposed to, and especially people who are supposed to look older, they just have makeup caked on their face. And yeah, not- and the, some of the Nixon scenes are a little little rough. Yeah, I mean, his nose is about five inches long. <laughs> <laughs> I was thinking that might be a little exaggerated. <laughs> yeah. Okay, let's jump into the movies. All right. It may be worth uh, mentioning that for the first half, the part that I'm narrating, uh, I watched the director's cut, and I believe Ron watched a different cut. So we may, uh, if you if you watch a movie after hearing this, you may find some inconsistencies. <laughs> so we start off, it's a, it's an apartment uh, at night, and it's a nice apartment. It's, it's dim, not a lot of lights on in it, but it's got wood paneling, upscale apartment. Uh, and there's a guy there in a robe, a fuzzy bathrobe. He's making a kettle of boiling water. And he's listening to a show on TV called The McLaughlin Group, which was a 1980s show. And I probably wouldn't remember it, except that there was a Dana Carvey sketch on Saturday Night Live where he played John <laughs> McLaughlin. And it was one of my favorite recurring bits on SNL. So, so that's stuck in my head over the years. From the nation's capital, the McLaughlin Group, an unrehearsed, hastily assembled program presenting inside opinions and forecasts on major issues of the day. With Jack Germond of the Baltimore Sun, syndicated columnists Pat Buchanan and Eleanor Cliff, and Morton Kondracki of the New Republic. Now here's the moderator, John McLaughlin. Issue number one, the commander-in-chief in Mexico. Bush wants a free trade agreement. What does President Salinas want? Pat Buchanan. John Salinas is playing up his recent economic success and steering his Jump, country jump toward... I don't think it's so much what Salinas wants. It's what Eleanor the Mexicans... Cliff. John, this is just another case of President Bush trying to push a policy. I'm not sure Bush has that... a policy, which Excuse is part me, of the problem. Pat, I believe Eleanor has the floor. Thanks, John. The hard truth is that Bush needs Salinas more than Salinas needs... I think this agreement talk is basically a Wrong! pipe Wrong! Because... There will be a free trade agreement. It will take place within one year. Issue number two. Maggie out, major in. The new British Prime Minister. Some believe he's a Thatcher clone. Will he carry out her policies? Chuck, come on! Well, Thatcherites are privately rejoicing. Wrong! No... More tone! You see, Thatcher endorsed... Wrong! The... Well, I watched the actual show a lot, and Dana Carvey was very funny. And he, but he really, McLaughlin really did do the thing of where, you know, he would wrap it up by saying, you know, okay, from zero to 10 is, you know, nuclear apocalypse <laughs> versus this. What's the answer? <laughs> and, and then he would tell everyone after the answer, you're all wrong. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And that was what, exactly what Carvey did. Wrong. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so he's listening to this as he's making his coffee or tea or whatever it is. That's President Nixon giving a speech, which if you, you know, McLaughlin group being a show I remember from the 80s and President Nixon having left in the early 70s, you might think that's a little weird. Mm-hmm. Well, get to that. <laughs> the Soviets are doing something in Afghanistan. They're thinking about invading it, which uh, they, they did in real life do that. But President Nixon is, uh, is against it. And then the atomic scientists who have their bulletin with the little clock showing how many minutes to nuclear annihilation, they, 
they move it ahead because they're thinking things are getting more tense. And then on the show, um, Pat Buchanan is one of the, he was one of the perennial guests on it. Pat Buchanan and Eleanor Clift both were. And in this case, Buchanan says that Dr. Manhattan, we haven't met Dr. Manhattan yet, but he speaks of Dr. Manhattan as a deterrent to the Soviets. Eleanor Clift's view is that he's a provocation to the Soviets. So they're, uh, they're at odds there. So this guy who lives in the apartment, he looks to me like he's probably a healthy mid fifties, although I think he's supposed to be more like in his late sixties. Yeah. The actor's a little young for the character, although they do, he, he doesn't look bad or anything, but no, no, he's fine. I, I like him. So he changes the channel and, uh, Nat King Cole comes on with unforgettable. That's, uh, that's mentioned in the subtitles, but I actually, actually, that's one of the, one of the things I would have known by myself anyway. <laughs> And an eighties commercial comes on and I think this was a real commercial. It's a woman lounging by a pool by a very fancy man. Uh, yeah. And she's sort of leaning backwards toward the camera in a very, uh, provocative manner. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And there's this big studly guy in a speedo or something. Who's... Not speedo. It's like underwear. He's literally uh, like Calvin Klein's underwear. Or so, and he's walking towards her. So no question what's, uh, what's going to happen here. <laughs> Yeah. And, uh, this commercial comes on and then the apartment door gets busted in and we see briefly, and, and this is just sort of a, I, I don't know if it's anything significant or not, but the apartment number is 300 that I'm thinking, you know, this is from a well-known comic book and, and the movie 300 on a comic based on a comic book by a different writer came out just a couple Thank years God. before. Yeah. And that was 2006 and I never saw a 300. And, and the movie was directed by Zack Snyder. So I guarantee you that uh, who directed this movie. So I guarantee you there's no coincidence that it was. Uh, uh, okay. <laughs> In fact, it was the success of that movie that let him do this oh, okay. because people had been trying to do Watchmen for decades. And nobody had been able to put it together. And it was just because 300 was so successful. He was able to, to do it. Ah, all right. Well, I guess my instinct served me well on this case. <laughs> I, I was trying to think maybe it's, maybe it's just some sort of little tribute or maybe it's a reference to the fact that this is this guy's last stand. And that's what the movie 300 was about. <laughs> I don't know. Anyway, the guy who breaks in, he's in a very simple leather outfit, no frills, just sort of almost a bodysuit, And he fights the guy in the bathrobe. Yeah. And I think when he comes in. The guy in the apartment says, I guess it was just a matter of tumor. So, you know, clearly there's something going on there. Yeah. So this apartment, as I said, it's a real nice apartment and he's got, he's got all kinds of decor with, you know, stands with samurai swords and, uh, you know, he's kind of a, and a history buff maybe, or, you know, some kind of art collector, but they're just trashing the place during their fight and it ends up. It ends up that the apartment resident uh, ends up losing. And he says, <laughs> he says it's, it's all a joke. And he says, I think he says, forgive me, mother. Um, and he's bleeding a single, he's wearing a little smiley face button, you know, your standard yellow with a smile and two eyes and, uh, a single drop of blood falls on it from his face. And then the intruder throws him right out the window. We see that little yellow button 
slab next to him on the pavement below. And uh, for a guy who fell as far as he did, his body's in pretty good shape, I think. But, uh, <laughs> but the button lands next to him. And then we hear a Bob Dylan song start up. So an interesting thing about background materials is that smiley face, which became the entire kind of representation of the whole series, right? And that actually came from the artist, Dave Gibbons, who we talked about, because he was doing, you know, speculative ways they would draw these things of the comedian because the comedian was so grim he just put a smiley face button on him thinking that would maybe light it up a bit but and then alan moore really took to that and it and that smiley face became you know literally just the image of of watchmen yeah oh yeah and we'll see this button a few more times throughout yeah. the show so now with this man lying dead in the street we hear Bob Dylan singing, the times they are changing, and we get the opening credits, which is a montage, and a pretty pretty interesting montage and uh, visually uh, impressive. I, I think this is, you know, obviously you're going to describe this, but I think this is one of the best sequences in the entire movie is this first couple of minutes. And also, you would never know it the first time you would watch it, but there, I mean, there are just dozens and dozens of little things embedded in this pieces of the story, background, etc. And you would have to watch it multiple times to pick up on all the things that are in this, this montage. Oh yeah. Yeah. And I, I didn't write down all the details of it. I just put down some of the highlights and it's still a pretty long list. So we start off with some, you know, 1930s style superhero crime fighting action. This montage, some of the scenes are in super slow motion. It's kind of that effect where they have multiple cameras so they can show you like a, a three-dimensional rotating around it. So some of them are super slow motion and some is just live action. One of the ones, I, I think it was in the 30s or somewhere in there that I really loved was it might have even been the comedian, but one of those captured this bank robber and they're, you know, is holding up this big bag of cash, you know, in that old style. Uh, there's a big dollar sign serving on the cash bag. You know? <laughs> I think that might be, there's one of them where like he's just, he's restraining the criminal and the guy's mm -hmm. just pointlessly firing rounds off into the air. Well, that might be the same seat, but Anyway, we see that we see the little bit of action. Then we see uh, the Minutemen. That's this group of superheroes. They're all poised, posing together in front of a sign that says the Minutemen, 1940. We see the Enola Gay dropping the bomb, and we see the picture on the side of the plane as one of the female superheroes. Yeah, it's uh, Silk Spectre, the original Silk Spectre, who's the mother of the characters in this movie. Right. The, the original was Sally. Yeah. And we'll see more of her later, too. She's still around and with us, uh, at least in 1985. <laughs> and then there's that famous picture. I think it's from VE Day, Victory in Europe yeah. Day, you know, where there's a sailor kissing a nurse on the street, which a few years back really... Uh, got under a lot of people's skin uh, because, I don't know, he didn't get permission or something, maybe. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know what the whole controversy was, but but it's one of the most famous pictures in mm -hmm. the modern era. So this is a recreation of that or, you know, that setting as it happened, except in this case, it's a female superhero. It's not Sally. It's a, a different one. 
very dominatrix looking kind of woman. Mm. And she walks up to the nurse and kisses her. And some <laughs> of the some of the people around seem a little scandalized by it. <laughs> and then we uh we see the press uh photographing a hero who's dead in a restaurant entryway. It turns out later that he got his cape caught in a revolving door. <laughs> really well, unfortunate way to go. A lot of the stylist photography is like, what was that guy, Weezer, Weezy, something like that, who had done, who did all these sort of New York, you know, dead people photos back in those times. And mm. these, some of these shots of like the dead people here are, are like that. You know? Yeah, it's a, it, it definitely has a familiar feel to it, you know, like Valentine's Day massacre type yeah. photography. Yeah. yeah. And then uh, we have the retirement party for Sally, uh, who is pregnant, uh, very clearly <laughs> pregnant as she's standing at the. Yeah. And it's one of those things where there's a lot of backstory to that. <laughs> yeah. And that, that will, that will emerge. And then we see some guys in white coats. They're dragging a hero who is, is struggling and. Yeah, looks looks out of control. Oh, and he's got these weird wings on, right? <laughs> mm, yeah. And he bites one of the the guys who's dragging him. Yeah. Yeah. So they they drag him to an old style ambulance. Yeah, basically the same kind of car. Yeah, same design as Ecto One, more or less. <laughs> and then we see a unfortunate scene where there's two women lying dead and very bloody on a bed. And I think, I may be wrong, but I think one of them was the woman who kissed that nurse. I think so. I think, I, I don't recall. I think maybe the other one was the nurse. Okay. Yeah. So they, uh, so I, yeah, I think you're right. And it's, so I think the implication is they got in a relationship and then somebody was offended by this and killed them. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. In fact, there is another scene somewhere where we saw that superhero with the nurse at a, at a party or something like that. Yeah. But written on the wall is uh, lesbian whores. So the killer left an explanation for his deed. And I, I'm thinking this Alan Moore, he also did V for Ven, Vendetta, right? Mm. So that's a theme, in at least those two were, you know, the, uh, <laughs> uh, the persecution of lesbians. Then we get a blue bald man who meets JFK and shakes his hand on the White House lawn. And the blue bald man will find out is Dr. Manhattan. We'll find out a lot about him throughout the movie. And then we get a, a surprisingly loving recreation of the JFK assassination, you know, with his head blown up and the whole nine yards, the camera pans and we see that the killer is the man we saw in the very first scene, the, the comedian, uh, then we get. A few more history scenes. We see Castro with the Soviet leadership at a military parade in Moscow. Uh, we see some hippies putting daisies into soldiers' gun barrels, and uh, that doesn't end up well for them. Yeah, in this case, right after they put in the flowers, uh, they all fire. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, we see Andy Warhol in his gallery showing off, uh, or his workshop, I guess, showing off a uh, a big picture, you know, the Marilyn Monroe style, you know, the ones he did of her. Yeah. With the multiple different colored pictures of the, the person. Yeah. 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 Except this is, I think it's Night Owl in this one mm. instead of Marilyn Monroe. And then we see the moon landing and, uh, <laughs> we see that, uh, 
the flag's just been planted on the moon and the camera pins and we see that Dr. Manhattan is already there watching. <laughs> I like how they did it because you don't actually see Dr. Manhattan. You see the reflection of him in mm. the astronaut's uh, helmet. So that mm. was kind of fun. <laughs> oh, yeah. yeah. And then we see Studio 54, which in the 70s was a famous uh, hangout for the rich and powerful and uh, trendy. Out front, we see a very tidy-looking superhero. Um, and this is my second mention of Dana Carvey for this podcast, because to me, he, he resembles Dana Carvey a little bit when you see him from the right angle. Yeah. Not all the time. There are a number of characters here where I have casting issues with, and he's one of them, because it'll turn out, you know, he's supposed to be the most intelligent man on Earth and have all this gravitas. And... You can imagine Robert Downey Jr. playing this role easily, especially now that we've seen him as Iron Man and all that. And to me, this guy just wasn't up to it. But anyway. <laughs> I, uh, I didn't have any big problems with him, although I did, I did wonder about his accent because uh, it, it's a little, it, it, I don't know if he was going for like a mid-Atlantic accent you know sort of with little english tones in it or if he was maybe supposed to be south african or something like his last name's bite we'll find out so it may be like a south african name i don't know but uh anyway he's outside studio 54 and we'll see more of him yeah and he plays a little bit of a role in the movie <laughs> yeah yeah he he gets his moments so then we see a new group photo echoing the one we saw of the 1940 Minutemen. And this is a new generation of heroes. It turns out that this, this generation is called the Watchmen. We see a headline uh, on the TV screen in a shop window. That's a common thing. We've seen a lot of movies with uh, TVs and shop windows. Nixon elected to third term, which, uh, of course, is a big tip off that uh, we're in a <laughs> alternate reality. And painted on that shop window is the message, who watches the Watchmen? <laughs> and I got to say, you spent, I don't know, five or more minutes describing all this. It takes maybe three minutes or something in the movie. And there's way, as we said, there's way, way more than you described. I mean, this is a very, oh, yeah. very dense three minutes. <laughs> yes. Yeah. There's a lot of blanking you'll miss it stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but really, uh, one of, one of the better, better movie openings I've seen, I think yeah. uh, pretty well done. So now we see there are cops in the comedian's apartment. Uh, the, the victim's name was Edward Blake. That was the comedian's real name. Yeah. And they, they don't know that he was the comedian, right? The, yeah. He had a secret identity. Yeah. We see on the street, there's a man, he's wearing a fedora and a trench coat, and he's got this shapeless mask like a burlap bag but it's got moving dark spots on it and they're they've got vertical symmetry so that the left side and the right side mirror each other like a rorschach inkblot which uh it turns out this character is rorschach mm-hmm. and he narrates from rorschach's journal and it's october 12th 1985 the body has been removed from the street but the smiley button is still lying there he picks it up and he uses a grappling hook to get up to the apartment. And as he's climbing up, uh, he continues his narration. He's really not happy with New York City, the condition that it's in, and with the uh, the governance of it. And uh, it's, he has a dark view of the world in general. And uh, he, 
he doesn't seem very fond of um, of people on the left in general either. He mentions some liberals and other people who he d- disagrees with, <laughs> yeah. to say the least. Well, there are things that I have problems with in this movie. The funny thing is to me, the things I would have suspected wouldn't work in the movie did work, and the, and the things I thought should have worked, did, you know, didn't. But Rorschach is, and Rorschach and Dr. Manhattan, as we'll see, are the two characters I would think would be very difficult to get right. And this movie, mm-hmm. I think, totally got them right. Rorschach is played by uh, Jackie Earl Haley. He was a child actor, and he's kind of had a resurgence since he did this movie, and he does an amazing job in this now one thing directorially that i disagree with because it to me it is annoying that every time we're looking at his face the um the rorschach block thing is moving all the time mm. and it annoys me mm. i would actually rather that it be like the comic and i would rather that when we see a shot of its face it's in one shape and then when we see another shot of its face it's changed but we don't actually see it changing yeah, because I'm like watching this moving stuff on his face all the time instead of paying attention to the scene. So <laughs> that that annoyed me. But but overall, I think they did a really good job of it. But, yeah, that's fair. I don't, I don't think I found it as distracting, but uh, it's not unreasonable. <laughs> and I, I may as well just uh, put my cards on the table now. I, I uh, Rorschach is not uh, uh, not a man without flaws by any means. I think of the characters in here, he's probably my favorite one. <laughs> Alan Moore did not want Rorschach to be the hero of this story, but the reality is anybody reading it, he's clearly the hero of this story. <laughs> <laughs> it's kind of a Colonel Jessup thing. Yeah. I, and I always, I actually love that. And it happens a lot, especially on TV, where writers, you know, this, for example, Archie Bunker, right? Archie Bunker was supposed to be the bad guy of that show, and everybody loved Archie Bunker. I really like it when writers have one idea, but the audience rejects it and (laughs) goes in a different direction. Yeah. Yeah. Pretty pretty entertaining. Yeah. He looks around the apartment. He goes into the closet, and on the back wall, there's a little button he presses, and that's the secret compartment where the comedian has kept all the superhero paraphernalia, his uniform, his tools, uh, even some old uh, framed pictures and newspaper right. clippings and stuff. And one of the things I see from this, and it's actually even more clear in the comic, is that, you know, the cops missed all this, right? And he's very mm-hmm. systematic, and he, he looks at the length of the cabinet and figures out that there's some space missing, and, you know, that's mm-hmm. how he realizes yeah. that there must be an extra compartment in there. Yeah, he's, a, he's, he's thorough. In his narration, which is still continuing, he says, uh, a comedian died tonight, and uh, he says somebody knows why. He's curious about what's up here. The cops enter the apartment, two cops. They heard something. Rorschach knocks one of them out, and the other one shoots at him. I think he takes about four shots at nearly point-blank range, and either they all miss or he's got some decent armor on or something. Yeah, there's a couple points in here where he gets awfully lucky with being shot. (laughs) (laughs) He's got plot armor, as we say. Yeah. So he ducks out, uh, out the broken window, and... Gets back down to ground level. Then we go to a small apartment. It's a it's a 
it's a cozy little apartment and an older guy is talking to a middle-aged guy and he's talking about how the original heroes got started. We find out that both of them are heroes, one retired, one, well, not exactly retired, but sort of retired. Yeah. Recently retired. Yeah. Yeah. Back in the old days, uh, before there were the heroes, there were cops and the gangs used masks so no one could ever identify them and point them out in court. So that was why the, the cops started using masks too. And, uh, no one could identify them. Fair enough. The older hero says that they had it easy compared to Nixon forcing out the new guys. Yeah. And he says to think I voted for that prick five times. <laughs> Understandable. And it's almost midnight. It's time for the younger guy to leave. And these two, these two were both night owl, the original night owl and the, the new one, the TV says Rorschach is still on the loose. That's the guy we saw. As the younger night owl leaves, uh, we see the apartments in an auto repair yard. Yeah. Um, As he walks out, and this is, well, it's an inner, so the comic says, every frame has all these references and there's just thousands of things that, you know, connect together in the comic. And it's one of the amazing things about the comic, but sometimes it can be a little on the nose, right? So as he's walking out of the auto repair yard, there's a sign there that says something like, you know, we repair, you know, old, you know, broken down. Yeah, <laughs> something like, like obsolete yeah. models or yeah. special. <laughs> yeah, so it's kind of like, oh, yeah, I see what you're saying. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So a young night owl gets home and the lock to his front door has been busted. It's, it's hanging open a couple inches. He goes in very cautiously. The suspense build turns out that. Rorschach is sitting in his kitchen eating beans. And uh, the young night owl seems glad to see him. He doesn't seem too terribly offended that Rorschach busted in and made his beans. He actually offers to heat up the beans, but Rorschach declines. <laughs> yeah, yeah, he thinks they're fine. Rorschach shows him the comedian's button that he picked up off the street. So they go downstairs to talk. It turns out that downstairs is a very large laboratory. It's fallen into some disuse. It's dusty and a little grimy, but it's a huge laboratory and it's in an abandoned subway tunnel. So very good movie location. <laughs> works good. Rorschach thinks that an ordinary burglar couldn't kill the comedian. This guy must have been sent. Night Owl says he heard a rumor that the comedian worked for the government since 1977. Rorschach has a theory that maybe someone is hunting superheroes. He doesn't seem to really get Night Owl too interested in the theory. And he leaves by walking down the subway tunnel. He knows where the he knows where the exit is out of the tunnel because he and Night Owl were partners back when they were active superheroes. Warshock walks down the street. We hear more narration. He believes a war is coming. And uh, he says that evil must be punished, and that's even in the face of Armageddon. Even <laughs> if there is a war coming, mm-hmm. he's still got to punish evil. So we go to an executive swanky office, and this is this is the guy we saw outside of uh, Studio Fifty Four. This is Adrian Veidt. His superhero name was Ozymandias, which uh, is an interesting choice. You have to think he must have chosen it ironically because Ozymandias in the poem didn't, didn't end up 
accomplishing everything he thought he would. <laughs> but this guy, he's entertaining questions from reporters. And this, the new night owl, his name is Dan, but the new night owl has come to visit him and he's standing off in the corner away from the, away from the group. He's just watching. Adrian Veidt talks about Veidt Industries working with Dr. Manhattan. They're trying to develop renewable energy sources. And Veidt's theory is that if we make resources unlimited, we make war obsolete. And he seems to view, he mentions ideology and, and dismisses it just as soon as he mentions it. Uh, he seems to view ideology as a distraction. His attitude, at least as he expresses in this scene, it reminds me kind of of Brave New World. He seems to think people will be happy as long as they're consuming. You know, that, that'll, uh, if you give people all the material things they want, then, you know, all those pesky ideologies like fundamentalist, this version or that version, will all just go by the wayside. I don't know if it's, I think ideology is a little more resilient and significant than <laughs> he, he seems to believe, but, uh, yeah. And I even argue, I think it's the reverse. And we, we see this in our country, which is as we get more wealthy and there's more plenty stuff for everyone, we actually get more ideology and more, you know, kind of argue <laughs> about this. but that's my own little theory. Yeah. 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 So the reporters disperse and Vite and Night Owl, uh, they hug briefly. So we see that they're old friends and Dan, the Night Owl, he's come to warn Vite that there might be a superhero killer on the prowl. Vite's identity is known to the world. You know, they, they all know that he used to be Ozymandias. So he, he could be a prime target. Uh, we couldn't avoid knowing because he has like a, you know, whole toy series and we see all over his office, the, you know, the little, uh, toys of him and. And everything else. Yeah, little action figures. Well, you got to make a few bucks. <laughs> Veidt listens to him, hears him out about this superhero killer, but he's more concerned about nuclear war. Even if Dr. Manhattan could stop 99% of all the nuclear warheads that were launched, the remaining 1%, Veidt believes, could kill every living thing on Earth. I think it could kill a lot of things. I'm skeptical that it could kill every living thing on earth, but, uh, you know, that's, that's what he thinks. And he's, he's the smartest man on earth, according to the movie. So we will go with it. Mm. And he doesn't think that Dr. Manhattan, he doesn't think it's likely that Dr. Manhattan could stop a hundred percent. He thinks it's inevitable that someone gets through. Right. So we see Rorschach on a dark rainy night, breaking into a military research center. And he narrates the fates of all the Minutemen, the ones, the ones who aren't around with us anymore. You know, the one that went to the insane asylum, the one who got his cape cut in the revolving door. <laughs> Which I don't, uh, I think this must've been before, uh, the Incredibles, right? Where they have the whole cape thing, like, don't worry. Oh, you know, <laughs> oh, maybe. Yeah. <laughs> He goes into the research center and there's this bald blue man that we've been seeing this Dr. Manhattan. Uh, but here he's about four stories tall. He's standing in a huge chamber and there's some reactor thingy that is. Yeah. And he's very naked. <laughs> I've seen him from the back. <laughs> yeah. We don't, uh, we, we don't see too much of the, uh, Dr. Manhattan's, uh, project. 
a couple times we get a sort of long distance shot. Lori enters. Lori is Silk Spectre, and we'll find out she's also the daughter of the original Silk Spectre, uh, Sally. And Dr. Manhattan already knows why Rorschach is here. But even though he knows that, he can't see his own future, which is something he used to be able to do, or sometimes can do, uh, because his future is blocked by temporal interference. He says it's probably caused by a future nuclear war, which would send tachyons traveling backwards through time. So Dr. Manhattan knows what he's talking about. He has a very broad perspective, as we'll see throughout the movie. But whatever, what for one reason or another, he's being interfered with. His future, future sight is interfered with. Rorschach is trying to uh, convince him to worry about this superhero killer, but Dr. Manhattan just teleports him outside the fence of the installation in mid-sentence. So he's <laughs> a little bit rude. But yeah. Rorschach was being a little rude also. <laughs> Rorschach's out in the rain, but back inside the facility, Dr. Manhattan, who's also, his, his real name's John, he talks with Lori. She's upset that he never told her about this temporal interference. I think he says something to the effect that he didn't want to disturb her or make her worry, I don't remember. Dr. Manhattan is almost always very earnest and sincere. I don't know if earnest is the right word. He doesn't really sound like he's trying to... Well, he's not over-emotional, I mean, but, but he's very sincere. You know, when he says things, it generally comes across as that's just what he, what he believes. Yeah, and it's, we'll see, he's becoming increasingly disconnected from humanity, so he'll say things that are very kind of offensive, but he will have no idea that yeah. people would take it that way. Yeah, Right. <laughs> Which I can relate to. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's very relatable. She's upset, but he, he shows her by way of explanation or trying to explain, he shows her how he perceives time. You know, he has these, the power to transfer that vision to somebody else. This is basically a Vulcan mind meld from Star Trek, right? Oh, okay. Yeah. Good point. But in this case, she gets a few random images, but then it ends up being mostly a flashback of one particular scene. And it's, it's her mom, who was Sally of the Minutemen, original Silk Spectre. She's arguing with her husband about the comedian. And the husband is upset because first the comedian tried to rape her. And then at a later date, she slept with the comedian. Mm-hmm. Um, and she protested it was only once, but still, you <laughs> can see why the guy might be upset. Well, it's clear, like, this is a... I don't know if they're married or, or whatever, but it, but he says like, oh, I'm, you know, I'm putting food on the table for you and your daughter. So it's clear that like they're in a relationship, but he's not her first person and he's kind of taking care of her, but she's not appreciating it. You know, that's yeah, sort of right. So the flashback ends pretty quickly and, uh, Dr. Manhattan knows that Laurie wants him to go to dinner with her like they used to, but, but he can't. He's absorbed in this project he's working on with Vite. So he knows that she'll call Dan, her night owl, instead. And he's okay with that. He, he thinks she should be uh, with a friend. 
Yeah, but again, one of the kind of insensitive ways he says, he, you know, at the beginning of all this, before explaining anything, he just says, oh, say hi to Dan for me. She's like, what are you talking about? He's like, well, because of the way I'm acting towards you, you're now going to go and talk to Dan. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, he's, he's, he says explicitly later on that he's not omniscient, but he's darn close in some ways. Yeah. And I have a personal experience in here. She has multiple times in the movie where she has these flashbacks and memories to her mother and everything. And my father died in the last year and I had not been connected to him for decades for various reasons. And after he died for the next couple of nights, I just dreamt over and over of this time when he almost shot me with a shotgun accidentally. He was trying to, he had no idea what he's doing with a gun. He wanted to go hunting because that's what men do. And we went hunting and he was trying to unload a bullet from the rifle. And I was sitting in the car and he was pointing the rifle at me while he was trying to unload it. And then the gun went off and, and, and it went about a foot away from me through the, through the back of the car. Um, and I had not really thought about that a lot, but after once he died, I literally just had dreams of it over and over again for a couple of nights. And I, I had had no idea how much that moment, um, had defined my relationship with him. So I kind of, I, I relate to this, right, where she keeps seeing this scene of her mother and her boyfriend or husband or whatever he is, you know, having this argument every time she comes back to it. And she kind of has to resolve this scene to sort of understand something about her life, as we will we will see later. Right. And I, I think I neglected to mention that we we see her as, as a little kid. She's like standing in the hallway yeah. a little way down from the open door. So she actually, this is something she had seen firsthand. So now we go, we go to a nice restaurant. Dr. Manhattan just said she know, he knows that she'll call Dan. And sure enough, there they are at this restaurant. And 99 Luftballons or, or 99 Red Balloons is playing. Yeah, talk about a song from my childhood. Or, oh, you know, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Very, very catchy. Yeah. <laughs> and also very, uh, very thematic given the movie because the song is all about a nuclear war that's accidentally started because of these red balloons are mistaken for a launch, something like that. I, Real good. I never even, I never even noticed that. <laughs> <Just like. laughs> yeah, I've never actually read good the catch. lyrics, but uh, that's, that's what I heard anyway. <laughs> okay. Yeah, good catch. So they're sitting at their table and they're, they're reminiscing about a, uh, a villain who just, uh, he, he considered himself a super villain, but really he just liked to get beat up by superheroes. Dan tells Lori that uh, he tried that with Rorschach one time and Rorschach threw him down an elevator shaft. <laughs> uh, and they both start laughing and then feeling bad about it, you know, because it's not really that funny, but. <laughs> well, and actually, I think this moment is actually important because we're going to see later the, the degree of violence that they are happy to do to people. Mm -hmm. And Honest, on the one hand, I mean, these are our sympathetic characters in the movie, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, these are um, two of the better of the good guys. Yeah. 
Yeah. And on the other hand, they are totally happy if they get the excuse to unleash, you know, incredible violence oh, yeah. on people. And and I think that's part of the point of, of this whole, of the graphic novel and, and, and the movie, right? Is like people who dress up in funny underwear and go out and fight criminals have some problems. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that um, does does seem to apply to, yeah, I think pretty much all these. Are, the only one I can think of immediately who doesn't have some kind of weird, quirky things, are arguably Hollis, from what we see of him, he, mm. he seems fairly well balanced. Uh, again, that's just off the top of my head. That, there's lots of, lots of evidence I'm not collating at the moment. <laughs> mm. Anyway, Laurie says that the Keen Act, which was the uh, the act of Congress that banned superheroes, uh, she thinks it was the best thing that ever happened to us, and she she was doing it uh, mostly just to please her mom. Her mom yeah. wanted her to do it. She mentions that John Doctor Manhattan thinks a war is coming, and she goes on to say she's now talking about her life with John. She doesn't know if John still cares about her or. If he's just pretending. And Dan says, well, if he's pretending, that means he cares. <laughs> Which is that's something of a point, I guess. Mm. And when they leave, uh, we see that Lori's government handlers are watching her from a car. You know, she she's a she's a permanent resident of that uh, military base we saw earlier. Mm. Or military research facility. So now we see a cemetery and uh, the sounds of silence plays over the soundtrack. This is the comedian's funeral. We see a red-haired man walking back and forth in front of the cemetery entrance. He's carrying a placard that says, The End is Nigh. And this red-haired man is actually Rorschach. Um, <laughs> this is Rorschach. I'd, I'd be tempted to say out of costume, but I think it's actually, he argues later on that this, this is in costume for him. Yeah. This was a big thing in the comic because, and, and it's true in the movie too. Uh, so, because we're kind of revealing this early, right? But in the comic, you see this guy carrying the end of Zanai's sign all the time throughout it. And it connects up at the end that it was Rorschach. And every time he says he saw something or whatever, it was because he was there with that sign. Uh-huh. But you never actually think when you're seeing that, that that's Rorschach. Like it's one of those little clues of like, when you reread the comic, you realize, oh, that's him all the way through. Right. And, yeah. 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 I don't think the movie is revealed that yet. Either. No, no, that comes. Yeah. That comes later. Yeah. So the watchmen have, have shown up for the funeral among others. And, uh, and, and, the comedian is getting a state funeral. He gets a flag on the coffin and the whole whole nine yards. And we see Lori teleports uh, in a flash of blue to a bathroom, and she pukes immediately. It turns out she's been teleported into Sally's apartment, her mom's apartment. And, uh, and Lori hates when Dr. Manhattan teleports her like this because it always makes her sick. Sally herself. I would say she's great, aged gracefully for, I think she's supposed to be 67. Yeah. And again, I, I think it's terrible makeup. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> but in any event, she's drinking margaritas at 2 PM, which makes her pretty much a woman after my own heart. 
Yeah, and Lori criticizes her for that. She's like, it's two, and I'm like, it's afternoon. Come on. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you got to have some uh, perspective here. And Sally, this isn't at all relevant to the plot as far as I can tell, but I just thought it was cute that one of her fans sent her a Tijuana Bible, the old uh, X-rated hand-drawn comic book that were popular in the you know, 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s. A fan found one of those that had been based on her and sent it to her, and she, she gets a huge kick out of it. She thinks this is great, and Lori thinks this is obscene. And, mm-hmm. you know, I think it's a, and, and that this ties back into what we're going to find out about Lori's parentage, that she has a very different perspective on sexuality and, and all that than her daughter does. You know? Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's true. It is a little bit of characterization, I guess. So, yeah. That's a good point. So Sally mentions poor Eddie and, and Lori protests that, uh, you know, she shouldn't be feeling as sorry for him considering how he treated her. Sally says about the past, she says, even the grimy parts of it keep on getting brighter. <laughs> so she does have a very different different mm. view than than Laurie does. We'll flash back to a meeting of the Minutemen where Sally goes into a rec room to change. They've been having a meeting in full superhero gear. She goes into a rec room with a pool table in it to change. Eddie comes in and he starts uh, propositioning her and finally he goes too far and she slaps him. And at that point he loses control. He punches her not just once, but multiple yeah. times and then bends her over the pool. Well, table. He doesn't just punch her. He like kicks the shit out of her too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. He, uh, he gives her a real, real walloping and bends her over the pool table and he's about to take things further than that even starts unbuckling his belt but the other heroes come in and rescue her in particular the hooded justice which doesn't really come into play much more in the movie but if you read the comic and if you watch the the watchman tv show the hooded justice is a much bigger presence (laughs) oh no kidding yeah now now is that the guy who ended up in an asylum no Oh, that because that was the Mothman, right? He was the guy with the wings. You know, oh, okay. Justice is a whole other thing. It's kind of a well. I won't get into it all. Also, I I mean, of the gazillion thing seasons we want to do in the future, you know, we should do the Watchmen TV series. It's really really good. Yeah, and, big game for that. A lot of the original Minutemen, we don't really learn much at all about them. Like I, um, I can't even remember the name of the one, well, the Dominatrix. And, and, you know, a lot of what they obviously can't cover in the movie is when you read the graphic novel, there's so much more than what we're talking about, right? Like, um, in the graphic novel, because superheroes actually exist, they don't have superhero comics. Instead, they have pirate comics. And they actually do the pirate comics in the graphic novel. And also... There's a book in here that Hollis wrote called, you know, Under the Hood, which they actually do excerpts from Under the Hood in the comic. I mean, there's just, ah. there's so much background and detail that they put into the comic and they, they couldn't even possibly put it into the movie. It would have mm. to be like a huge miniseries you know, right. to cover all that stuff. Yeah, okay. So they, they came closer to that, you think, with the television series? Well, 
No, it's just, well, in the sense that they got into some of the characters like Hooded Justice that didn't get time in the in the movie, right? Huh? Um, and it does take from some of that background material. So that's true. You know, yeah, they were because they had whatever it was, 10 or 12 episodes, they were able to explore some of that stuff. Oh, okay. Yeah, I wouldn't mind seeing that. So after that flashback, which ends with her, uh, her face is is very bloody. He really uh, did a number on her. But in the present, she's very philosophical about it. She says it rains on the just and the unjust alike. <laughs> she says something to the effect that Eddie was a little of both. Mm. Then we're back at the cemetery, back at, back at the comedian's funeral, and we get another flashback. Uh, what we're going to get for the next little while here is Many of the people who are attending the funeral are going to have their own individual flashbacks. This flashback is uh, Dr. Manhattan in Vietnam. They're going through some fields, uh, you know, in a valley somewhere in Vietnam. And Dr. Manhattan is in his gigantic four-story tall form. And he's blowing up Viet Cong soldiers simply by looking at him you know he he looks at him and they just explode into blue <laughs> meat splashes and the ride of the valkyries is playing in the soundtrack which of course is there are helicopters flying right next to dr manhattan so this is a an apocalypse now <laughs> referenced the comedian is down on the ground uh going before dr manhattan and he has a flamethrower and he's really clearly enjoying it. You know, he just sets a soldier on fire and laughs. I think he may be smoking a cigar, if I remember. But he's yeah, he's having a grand old time. And this part is a key part in the comic and here and 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 the whole theme we've been talking about, which was, you know, how would history change if you actually had superheroes? So, in this case, Manhattan is basically taking care of Vietnam. <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> and we see a bar in Vietnam afterwards, and there are fireworks going off overhead because the war has been won by, by the Americans. Inside the bar, Eddie and Dr. Manhattan are both there, and uh, he, he makes a little remark about how he thinks if, he, if we'd lost in Vietnam, it would have driven America crazy. <laughs> And uh, so that could be a little social commentary. Yeah, possibly. <laughs> a pregnant Vietnamese woman enters the bar uh, to tell Eddie that now the war is over, they need to talk about her impending baby. <laughs> Eddie doesn't want to hear it. He's going back to the States. Baby's her problem. He blows her off. She wants attention, so she breaks a bottle. She must have decent reflexes because, you know, Eddie being, well, he's a drunk superhero, but still, <laughs> he's a superhero. But she manages to slash his face with the bottle. He is absolutely livid about that, and he pulls out a pistol and shoots her dead. Yeah. And, I, I, you know, before she does it, she says, you're going to remember me, I think, and, and you're going to remember Vietnam, right? So. I think she knows she's going to die, but she's going to make sure that he can't forget. Mm, yeah. Yeah. I think, uh, I think you're right. You, I didn't, I didn't interpret it that way at the time, but I, I think you're right. That's probably like, like the, the gypsy's curse almost. You know? 
So at this, uh, Dr. Manhattan seems surprised. Well, Eddie was setting up the shooter. Dr. Manhattan is saying, no, don't do it. Stop. Right. Mm -hmm. And that flows into what's going to happen next. Right. 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 Because Dr. Manhattan, uh, uh, with his usual calmness, he, he kind of rebukes Eddie, uh, for doing that. And, uh, the comedian says he points out that, uh, Dr. Manhattan could have done something if he wanted to stop it there. He gives a few examples. One I think is that he could have turned the bottle into snowflakes, you know, but he didn't. The comedian, uh, to finish off his argument, he says, you really don't give a damn about human beings. And to me, I've been fortunate not to have to deal with hugely toxic people most of the time. But this to me seems, seems like a tactic that an abusive type of person would use, you know, an argument tactic. Like the other guy says, you shouldn't have done that. And then he, he tries to flip it around on Dr. Manhattan. You're right. But on the other hand, it's a valid criticism. Manhattan could have stopped it and he yeah. chose not to. Right. And so what, so regardless of what it means about Eddie, it's like, what does it mean about Manhattan? And, and I mean, my take on it would be, he just felt like this is going to happen. So I'm not going to stop it. You know? Yeah. Yeah. There, there does seem to be an element of fatalism that comes with this, uh, ability to see the future. Yeah. So now we're back at the funeral and now it's Adrian Veidt's turn to have a flashback. He's leading a meeting of the watchmen. They're gathered in front of a big crime map of the entire United States at least the continental United States, Dr. Manhattan teleports in with a lovely dark haired woman who, uh, is definitely not Lori. Uh, so this was far enough in the past that he was dating someone else. Ozymandias, Adrian Veidt, he has a plan, but the comedian's very cynical about it. He thinks a nuclear war is coming. He sets, sets fire to the crime map. He says, after the war, then Ozzy Bandius here will be the smartest man on the cinder. And that's all we see of that meeting for now, but we'll get a little addition later on. Back at the funeral, now it's Dan's turn to have a flashback. Night Owl is at the controls of a very cool vehicle that's hovering on a city street over a crowd gathered to protest superheroes. So it's, it's kind of ironic. They're, they're protesting against superheroes and supporting the police, which, uh, given the events of the past few years is, uh, <laughs> kind of, a, a ironic to say the least, considering what people were protesting not long ago. So the, this vehicle is hovering overhead night owl. We can see he's at the controls. The, the, the I just realized this, the machine is actually owl themed. It's got two big round windows, like the eyes of an owl. Like, Well, and also his glasses. I mean, there's a lot of, you know, I see this in so many of these movies we watch, right? Where glasses are a big deal. So mm-hmm. Night Owl's glasses reflect the, the windows on this craft and his glasses are used all, I mean, there was a reflection of them having sex with his glasses, you know, so, mm-hmm. uh, it doesn't happen in this movie, but you know, about half the movies we've seen at some point, one of your glasses gets cracked and that means that you're, <laughs> you're in trouble. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. 
so this crowd, oh, I, I, I meant to mention Night Owl's at the controls, but Comedian is actually mounted outside, like on a running board or something like that. Well, he's standing on one of the, the windows. Yeah. One of the viewports. Yeah. yeah. Sort of just holding on on the, on the exterior. And the crowd starts throwing stuff at the Comedian and at the vehicle. And he hops down onto the street. And he, he's got a shotgun loaded with rubber rounds. And he, and he warned them that he had rubber rounds, and they apparently didn't hear him or didn't listen. And he starts firing these rubber rounds into the crowd, and that, that gets him to disperse. And we, uh, we see a little mural on a building nearby uh, that says uh, something about United States welcomes Vietnam as the 51st state. So this alternate history is still, is still being alternate. Night Owl comes down out of the vehicle. He disapproves of the comedian's tactics, and he wonders what the hell has happened to us. And the, the, com the comedian uh, says that the American dream came true. That's, uh, that's how he views it. <laughs> so back at the funeral, Night Owl still has, uh, the younger Night Owl, Dan, he still has the comedian's bloody button. He flips it down into the hole on top of the coffin. After everyone files away, there's one person left. It's an old man, and he's got these pointy elf ears, and he lays a wreath of roses at the tombstone. And the red-haired man that we saw at the gate with his placard, he watches this elf man leave. And then we switch to that old man's rundown apartment. He looks through his mail, and there's a there's one envelope in there that'll be relevant later. It's from a group called Pyramid. He opens his fridge, and there's a note written on a torn piece of a cardboard pizza box. It says, behind you. And it's signed with a little reverse R and forwards R that are Rorschach's calling card. He looks behind him, and it's Rorschach, who tackles him right into the fridge. And identifies him as Moloch. And we'd seen him in one of those earlier sequences. I forget who one of them had defeated him. Oh, I um, think it's the opening credits was one of those little vignettes that we saw in there. Right. And uh, who was this arch enemy? Um, I should know this because it was key. Oh, in this. It was the comedian. Yeah, right. The comedian was his arch enemy. Like they had been enemies throughout their careers. Right. Yeah. And, uh, and he's been mentioned at, at least one or two times. I think they mentioned him in that one meeting where Adrian was trying to get the Watchmen. To... So let me ask you, did you recognize this actor, the actor playing Moloch? No, I didn't. He was Max Headroom. No kidding. <laughs> oh, <laughs> His name yeah. was Matt Frewer, yeah. <laughs> oh, cool. Yeah. I, I started watching that. I, I watched like the first episode and part of the second, and then I got distracted by something. But I've got that. Talk about something from our childhood. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. I never I never did watch it in the 80s, and I, I was curious because I've heard it's good. And, and from what I saw of it, that looks like it's going to be fun. Huh, I'll be darned. Okay, cool. So, Moloch... Rorschach's being pretty rough with him. He even breaks a finger. Uh, you know. Yeah, he likes to break fingers a lot. <laughs> <laughs> well, you go with what you're good at, I guess. Moloch says that a week ago, the comedian broke in while Moloch was in bed. He broke in and came and sat on the edge of the bed. He was unmasked. He was drunk. He was crying. 
from what he said, he's doing something now, or he was doing something then that he wasn't proud of, which is considering the source that's uh, you know, saying a whole lot. Right. The comedian mentioned that Moloch's name was on a list with Janie, Dr. Manhattan's old girlfriend. And just from this story, it isn't clear what the list was. Maybe it was people he was supposed to kill. You know, we're not sure. At any rate, he didn't kill Moloch that night, if that was what it was. Rorschach says, sounds unbelievable. Probably true. <laughs> and, and one thing I haven't mentioned about Rorschach, when he's, when he's got his bag on, he's always doing a very exaggeratedly gruff voice. Mm-hmm. Although not as bad as Christian Bale's Batman. <laughs> oh, okay. I haven't seen that for a while. Take your yeah. word for it. <laughs> and then also when, when he talks, he leaves out a lot of helper words that we usually use <laughs> in English. So it's, it's, it almost sounds like he's either trying to be very deliberately brief or, you know, he's, he might be in English as a second language guy, but uh, <laughs> it doesn't, he doesn't do it all the time, but, but he does it a lot in the gruff voice. He, he. Pretty much invariably. So Moloch goes on to say, Rorschach's rummaging through one of his drawers, looking for evidence that Moloch is still up to no good. He finds this drug. He recognizes it as a kind of spurious thing from, you know, the kind of thing you might import from South America or whatever. That's supposed to be some natural herb that'll help you. And he, he tells Moloch this is illegal. Moloch says, I'm trying anything. I have cancer. Rorschach asks him what kind, and Moloch says, you know the kind you eventually get better from? That ain't the kind I got. (laughs) And here's my libertarian side. On the one hand, most of those, you know, kind of little from Mexico pills that cure your cancer, they're all all fake. On the other hand, the idea of making it illegal just pisses me off, right? People should be able to take whatever they want to take, you know, especially when they're terminally ill. Yeah. I mean, uh, when your options are limited, the, the bad thing is that people will, there'll be unscrupulous people who, mm-hmm. who are deliberately knowingly selling you a pig and a poke. And that, that, that's, I've, I've been hearing lately, like, uh, I, I generally, I think drug laws cause a lot more harm than they do good, but one possible counter argument is that nowadays people are lacing things with fentanyl all over yeah. the place. Uh, even like marijuana, you well, might buy a, try to jo- buy a joint and you'll die from having fentanyl in it. So a friend of our guest, Sarah, who, you know, is an expert in psychedelics. One of the things she does is she uses a test kit to make sure mm. that what she has has not been laced like you're talking about. So right. yeah, there are, there are things you can do to try to avoid that. Yeah. Yeah. You know, that's a, that's a different crime. The crime in that case is adulterating drugs. Yeah. Anyway, that's a whole nother tangent. (laughs) So we see Rorschach on the street. He's doing more journal narration and he's wondering what could have scared the comedian because comedian didn't scare easily, apparently. And then we see Dr. Manhattan and Laurie in bed. I get the impression that he is not terribly aroused. He's doing this for her. Yeah. He. 
I, I, do, I think Dr. Manhattan, whatever passion he may have had, is large, largely gone, <laughs> which I can sympathize with. So we see his two hands on her, you know, sort of caressing her. Then we, then we see four hands. It turns out that he's made two copies of himself. He thought she was into it, but once she realizes, she's very offended. Now, given the knowledge that he has, I'm thinking this is something that she would be into under other circumstances, but in this case, she's not. And I don't want to judge, but I'm thinking maybe she should just go with it. <laughs> this is kind of interesting, right? You yeah, have extra possibilities here, and it's it's not like you're cheating. It's not like well, the same yeah, guy. Yeah, this you is, know, is, oh, sure. You know, this is, uh, you know, when you're dating Dr. Manhattan, that sort of thing just comes with the territory, I think. Yeah. <laughs> so she's, She's about to calm down. She's starting to uh, get some perspective, realize that he was, he was trying to please her, even if, even if that's not how it panned out. Uh, and she's just about back to cal calm down. Then she turns and she sees a third one working in the lab. So while these two were tending to her, this third one was here working with Adrian Veidt. And I, I gotta tell you, you know, people say, oh, what superpower would you like to have? You know, I don't want to be able to fly. For one thing, you know, all this stuff about flying, like you're flying through the atmosphere, because you're going to be freezing. <laughs> There's going to be all sorts of problems with that. I don't want to be able to fly. I don't want to be able to stretch. But being able to do the thing that I'm really thinking about while also pleasing <laughs> for the <laughs> that's a superpower I would like to have. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I'd be playing my video game in the other room. <laughs> You're, you must be a mind reader. Was... <laughs> so she's, she's understandably upset because she thinks it's a sign uh, that of how, of how little he, he values her. And, and as a viewer, I get the impression he really does care about her as much as he can, yeah. can care but, about anyone at this point. But he tells her he was paying full attention to her, which is just bullshit because he's also doing this complicated scientific application. So no, he wasn't paying full attention to her. Right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, maybe, maybe there's a way that he can split off processes or something. I don't know. He, he knows probably more about how minds work than I <laughs> and I'm tempted to give him the benefit of the doubt, but yeah, it's well, yeah. At the end of the day, I'd say I think if she just relaxed about it, it would be fine. But it, yeah, you know, <laughs> she's angry enough now that she throws something big and heavy at his head, like a paperweight or whatever coffee cup. I don't know, uh, but it passes through his head and smashes a cathode ray tube behind him, and it, that immediately self repairs. Dr. M probably did that. So while they continue arguing, <laughs> he, he tells Veidt, who is on that cathode ray screen, he tells him he's teleporting the reactor to Karnak. And we'll find out Karnak is Veidt's uh, research base, and, uh, but, it, but it's named after an actual place uh, in ancient Egypt. And if you ever want to visit it, you can get the downloadable <laughs> content for Assassin's Creed Origins <laughs> and visit Karnak in its, uh, in its prime or maybe shortly after its prime. Yeah. I don't remember. Uh, you know, and that's, we get paid for this episode, but 
to me, this, so I don't think it was insulting when he duplicated himself while they were having sex or while he was off working on his thing. To me, the insulting thing is literally in the middle of a sentence while he's talking to her, while she's upset with him, he says to Vay, oh, I'm now teleporting the reactor. Like, I mean, that's the degree to which he's not paying attention to her. Right. You know, and I think that is insulting. Yeah. Yeah. That's uh, that, that's a good point. Yep. <laughs> that is, uh, yeah. <laughs> so, so she leaves and Veit says, don't worry, John, she'll be back. And Dr. Manhattan says, no, she won't. <laughs> so we see Dr. Manhattan sitting alone on the edge of his bed. He's looking at a Polaroid. But this isn't a Polaroid of him and Laurie. This is a Polaroid of him and the previous girlfriend, the dark-haired one. And well, Laurie's Laurie's dark-haired, but she's she's more brunette. Where this this girlfriend is black-haired. It's mm-hmm. just really dark. In Dan's apartment, Night Owl, new Night Owl, a guy is on TV doing a promotion for his upcoming exclusive interview with Doctor Manhattan. There's a knock at the door. It's Lori. She left John. She doesn't know anybody else. Lori has seen John becoming more and more estranged from the world. You know, this this latest incident is just one in a, in a long line of that type of thing. And we get a quick shot of Dr. Manhattan. He's getting dressed telekinetically. He's just having these clothes hovering and floating around him. You know, his waistcoat drapes itself over his shoulders. His necktie wraps it around his neck and ties itself. So that's, that's an easy way to do it, I guess. <laughs> and, uh, Dan invites Lori to co- come along with him. This is his weekly beer night with Hollis, uh, the old night owl. So he invites her to come along. She says, yes. Back at Dr. Manhattan's apartment, he's fully dressed now, very dapper. I, I, the guy wears a suit well. I got to give him credit for that. And he teleports into the television station uh, right in the lobby, which causes a minor fuss. And then one of the one of the production staff tells him that his skin tone's too bright, but there's no time to do to do makeup. You know, his blue is just too glowing. Uh, so he tones tones down his skin tone in real time. Just fades down uh they sing that'll be good enough we see a newsstand and the red-haired man who we're not supposed to know who he is so i'll shut up about it um <laughs> he's still got his the end is nigh placard and he bugs the vendor for the latest issue of a monthly right-wing magazine that the, the vendor doesn't seem to approve of very much but as they're talking about it the truck pulls up with the bundle of new, the new issue this red-haired guy watches as Dan and Lori pass by on their way to Hollis. So this is a scene that must be in the director's cut that's not in the movie that was released because it wasn't in the version that I watched. Yeah, so oh, okay. That. <laughs> okay, good deal. Well, and I will say it is a it is a flaw in the release movie because you do not find out about this right-wing magazine, which is called The New Frontiersman, until the very end of the movie. Ah, okay. So, yeah, there should be a little more foreshadowing. Yeah, and in the comic, it was all the way through, right? So, yeah, absolutely, this is uh, an improvement in the director's cut. Okay, good deal. Good to know. 
So Dan and Laurie pass by him and they cut down an alleyway and we see four shady looking gangsters. I mean, they're, they're tough guys. Uh, they, they go in the alley right afterwards and it, it doesn't look like they're going to sell them Girl Scout cookies. <laughs> uh, Dr. Manhattan begins this exclusive interview with this television reporter. Uh, the first question is about the atomic scientists at their clock, which we've already seen earlier in the movie. He mentions that his dad was a watchmaker and I have to think that this was Alan Moore making a little, uh, reference to the controversy between creation and evolution, you know, because one of the, one of the most often raised arguments is that, you know, the universe is too complex to be the product of random chance. Uh, yeah. And a watchmaker is the canonical example that's used for that. Yeah. I'm not even getting into that, but also this is a reference to Einstein, who said that he wished he had been a watchmaker. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, okay. Very good. Dr. Manhattan, after mentioning that, he, he says a symbolic clock, meaning the atomic scientists, the countdown to death clock. Uh, he says a symbolic clock is as nourishing to the intellect as a photograph of oxygen to a drowning man. <laughs> Makes sense to me. Yeah. Uh, meanwhile, Dan and Laurie are handling the muggers. And I, I didn't take a lot of notes on this because it's, uh, it's just sort of interspersed cuts of well, them fighting these guys. But there is a lot of gore. You'll see, like, broken bones poking out of yeah, people's skin. A couple things here. I mean, what, and this comes back to my earlier comment. So when they realize that these guys are going to go after them, they get really happy, right? <laughs> And when they're fighting these people, as you say, they are breaking their bones. I mean, their bones are sticking out through their skin. It is very brutal. And there's also the weird thing that like four people follow them in, but then there's like 20 people in the alley um, fighting them. I'm not sure why 20 people would be there. But I think, I think probably they were around and they heard the fracas. Yeah. Well, they're all wearing the same uniforms and everything. But I think this comes back to like, these people are addicted to this kind of violence. And as soon as somebody gives them an excuse, they are totally happy to break people's arms and legs and, you know, kill them or, or whatever. I mean, you know, so these are our good guys, but, you know, boy, they're pretty brutal. <laughs> so they're handling them pretty well. Back in the interview, Dr. Manhattan, he, he explains that he can only see his own past and future, that he's not a mission brought up briefly earlier. So that explains some of the questions people might have about why didn't they do this? Why didn't they do that? And then a reporter in the audience asks him about a whole list of names. There's Wally Weaver. There's Edgar Jacoby, who was Moloch. There's Dr. Manhattan's old handler, who was, I think, a general. And he mentions Jamie Slater, Dr. Manhattan's old girlfriend. Uh, the reporter says they all got cancer. And Janie comes in the side entrance to the studio with some people leaving her. It turns out she's wearing a wig. Uh, she takes it off and most of her hair is gone. And she's, she's very accusing, very 
very angry and hurt. Uh, she says she stood by him after the accident. Yeah, she want to see. I think she has a point. <laughs> well, yeah, it's clearly she has a point. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We'll uh, we'll find out later in more details about that. Yeah, it's uh, it's really. I mean, the movie. It's it's a three. The director's cut at least is a three hours, uh, three hours and six minutes. I think. Yeah. Okay. So that's a. Uh, yeah, that's over half an hour more than the regular cut. Well, okay. But in that three hours, I thought the time was used well. I mean, I, I was never bored. You know, it was, there's a lot of little intricacies that they explain. And, uh, um, yeah. it's, yeah. I, and now you're making me have to rewatch it. <laughs> to find to rewatch. Uh, let's, <laughs> let's, uh, let's watch the director's cut. <laughs> so after this revelation about all these people who have, who have, been close to Dr. Manhattan and who have gotten cancer. Chaos erupts in the studio. The reporters gang around Dr. Manhattan, shouting questions, as the porters sometimes do. And uh, first he asks them calmly to leave him alone, and you can guess how that goes over. And then he repeats it much more loudly, and uh, they all vanish in the blue clouds that we've associated with Dr. Manhattan and they're gone and he's alone on the stage. And I, I don't know if it's ever made clear. Did he kill them? Did he just disintegrate them or did he just teleport them somewhere else? Yeah. Uh, yeah it'd be nice to think he just teleported them somewhere else, but, uh, you know, back in Vietnam, he was blowing up people left and right. Mm-hmm. Okay so hard to say. Well, and I think even earlier in this interview, he said the number of molecules in a live person and a dead person is the same, so there's no real difference, right? Can we right. Yeah, he doesn't really value life. Yeah, that's, um, he has a view of life that's, at, at the very least, it's very alien to a normal living human being. So they're all gone. He's alone on the stage, probably realizing he screwed up a bit. Back in the alley, we see the thugs are beaten now. There's a few of them who are rolling around in pain. And Laurie says she's had enough hero stuff for one night. So she's not going to go on to Hollis's after all. Uh, But he continues on. And uh, at Hollis's, uh, Dr. Manhattan's outburst is, uh, is on the TV. Yeah, and all this was not in the version I watched. Oh, okay. Ah. So now we see the planet Mars, and this is where Dr. Manhattan has gone now after leaving the studio. And he's got a flashback. He's at a carnival with Jamie, and his friend Wally is there. Wally is another one of the people who was mentioned by the reporter as having cancer now. And Wally... It's kind of a kind of a Joe Flaherty type from SCTV. Uh, I, I think I've mentioned him here before because we ended up uh, uh, having a brief digression on freaks and geeks. I think he played a father <laughs> in that. Oh, okay. Uh, I okay. I see that now. I knew I recognized him, but yes, absolutely. I um, okay. I see it <laughs> <laughs> at the carnival. John wins Janie a prize. And later that night, they get home and they they go all the way for the very first time. Mm. A month later, they're all leaving work, John, Janie, and Wally. But John left his watch behind. 
And he picked a bad place to leave it behind because not only is it a room with some horrific science fiction electrical array with arcing stuff when you light it up, but also the door is on a time lock and there's no override on top of that. (laughs) And wouldn't you know, it shuts fast enough that you don't even have time to go in and retrieve a watch that's lying right on the table. So he's trapped in this room. Ah, there's no override. And not only is the door on a time lock, but apparently this huge electrical array is also on a time switch because it will only be a moment or so after the door closes before this thing fires up and starts doing whatever it's supposed to do. So now there's a flashback within the flashback of Janie buying him a beer and that's how they originally got together she uh took the first step and bought him a beer and then there's another flashback of his dad teaching him to fix a watch then we get back to the top level of the flashback his watch ticks down to midnight the electrical array lights up and tears him to shreds instantly as he he puts it right before that He says, I feel fear for the last time. Mm -hmm. So as Dr. Manhattan, he never feels fear. Yeah. So at this point, everyone thinks he's dead. Right. Right. They think he's been, I think he's been. Naturally, because his body is gone. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. A reasonable enough assumption. But within the next few days, all around this research base, these horrific apparitions start popping in and out. They're all agonized blue figures, and they're all in various states of incompleteness. Once it's just a circulatory system that appears for a few moments, then another time it's a screaming skeleton with a little bit of flesh on its bones. And then finally, one day, he appears in the cafeteria, apparently right at lunchtime, as the fully formed Dr. Manhattan. Yeah. And he doesn't just appear. He appears and kind of stretches out his arms in a very Jesus you know, <laughs> pose. Now that that's intentional or anything. <laughs> yeah. So after that, uh, all of a sudden he's uh, he's on a roll. He's like uh, like in Disney's Hercules. They have a they have a whole song about how he went from zero to hero. <laughs> It's Dr. Manhattan. Now. Yeah, we're missing the music in this. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so he, the marketing boys, as he calls them, they tell him he needs a logo. So he invents one for himself. And uh, I think it's supposed to represent an atom because it's a, it's a large black dot inside a thin circle surrounding it. And then on the top perimeter of that circle, there's a small black dot, which I yeah. think is supposed to be an electron. I believe it's a hydrogen atom, which is basically the most mm. basic. Atom. Right. Yeah. So then we see uh, what follows in his career. We see him uh, giving a demonstration to the military. They've got a tank parked nearby, and he destroys it in a neat way. He, first, he explodes it into hovering components. Uh, it's almost like if you were using some computer program that's a guide to the construction of the tank, you know, that where it, it blows up and you can look at each component individually. But then all of a sudden they implode into a 
misshapen ball. So uh, pretty cool. Then Nixon asks him to help out in Vietnam. And while Dr. Manhattan does go along with it, he also says that Nixon was the, the first president who would have asked him for something like that. <laughs> the war is won a week later, a week after Nixon asks. Uh, Hollis Mason, the night owl, he writes his, writes his book. Uh, we find somewhere in this movie it's mentioned that he had a few uncharitable things to say about the, the comedian. <laughs> At Christmas 1963, so this, this flashback is earlier than the Vietnam flashback, I think. Yeah, yeah, because Nixon wouldn't have been. He tells Janie, uh, Dr. Manhattan tells Janie, he doesn't think there's a God, and if there is, he's nothing like him. But he tells her that he will always want her. And then... But he knows, he said, I mean, we see it as in his narration that he knows it's a lie when he tells it to her, which is interesting. Right? Yeah, he, he says, as I'm lying to her or something yeah. to that. And then we skip to 1970 and he meets Lori at a party in 1970. She, so basically she's a younger woman and he just, it, it's a very traditional thing for a godlike person. You would think maybe he could be better than just the traditional, you know, guy who goes for the younger version of his wife. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's a, it's an old story, but, uh, uh, it's, it's still, as unfortunate as it always is. Even if you're God. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, Zeus had the same problem, I guess. <laughs> Back on Mars, Dr. Manhattan drops the photo, the Polaroid of Jamie and himself. He drops it in the soil. And then he watches as a massive crystal clockwork sphere rises out of the dirt. Yeah. This just occurred to me. I think there's a similar scene in one of the Superman movies where, like, he grows his fortress of solitude from uh, from some kind of crystal that he found in a suitcase in a barn or some such thing. But but it's that type of thing. He's just standing there watching whilst some incredibly complex and majestic structure rises out of the earth before him, or out of the Mars Earth, as it were. We see Laurie... She's in a, a nifty kind of room. It's the wallpaper of the room is just a big photograph of being in a birch grove. And the floor seems to be astroturf, and it's even got little scattered autumn leaves on it uh, here and there. The government handlers are asking some questions. The handler lights a cigarette, and this makes her flashback to the meeting where the comedian set Vite's map on fire. After that meeting, she kind of smiles. You see her smile when the comedian puts Vite in his place. Or, or yeah, I mean, Vite didn't really have it coming. Comedian was being a jerk, but still, it was amusing to watch. And so, outside, she meets Eddie, and he seems to be coming on to her a little. Yeah, maybe he's just being friendly, but knowing what we know about Eddie, <laughs> we, we might reasonably suspect he's coming on to her. Sally shows up. And she yells at him. And Eddie replies, can't a guy talk to his, you know, old friend's daughter? That's a, I, I put that line in because it is relevant. Uh, we'll find out later. Mm -hmm. The flashback ends. The scientists rush into this uh, birch tree room and 
They say they found Dr. Manhattan. He's on Mars. So now we go to the war room, uh, the president's war room. And this is very Dr. Strangelove-esque. I'm sure, I'm sure it's deliberate because it just, you know, it is the same mood, the similar layout, you know, not exactly the same, but it's, it's definitely draws some inspiration from it. Mm, yeah. There's the round, uh, lights, you know, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And Henry Kissinger is in here and president Nixon, and there's many other suits, you know, both, uh, military uniforms and business suits. And, uh, the absence of Dr. Manhattan, the Soviets are aware of it, and it seems to be emboldening them. Uh, they're thinking of going ahead with their Afghanistan invasion. Kissinger whispers to Nixon, they must fear the madman, Richard Nixon. <laughs> and, um, oh, oh this is, I, well, we're already going pretty long here, but I, <laughs> I will mention I did have the opportunity to ask Henry Kissinger a question once back when right. I was in college. I, Went to hear him speak, and I uh, I asked him kind of a pessimistic question about uh, uh, how America seems to be moving towards socialism, and his answer was that he didn't think America was going that way. So, who knows? Henry Kissinger uh, maybe may have known something we don't. We'll see. <laughs> anyway, Nixon asks his staff about a preemptive strike. They tell him one could be ready in two days. A preemptive strike would be starting the nuclear war, you know, dropping the missiles before they can launch most of theirs. He's asking about it. One can be ready in two days. Now, the staff predicts that the most likely outcome is loss of the East Coast. But, uh, you know, some of the other parts of the nation would, would still survive. And Nixon says, the last gasp of the Harvard establishment. Let's see them think their way out of fission. <laughs> and while, uh, while starting a nuclear war is a pretty terrible idea overall, I have to admit he makes it sound bad. <laughs> so the staff, one of the members of the staff says, not so bad, all things considered. Again, but it's very, very strange, loving uh, kind of remark. Nixon orders them all to start preparations. He says, Dr. Manhattan has two days. The scientists spread out maps of Mars on the ping pong table in the Birch Grove room. Lori has to use the can, and she knocks out her handler and chains him up to the sink. She says the only thing that can bring John back is John, and she's been a prisoner here long. She takes the guy's gun, and she's going to go somewhere else. In Adrian Veidt's office, Lee Iacocca is there. Um, At first, I thought it was Ed McMahon. (laughs) <laughs> but soon enough, we find that, uh, that's Leo Iacocca. He and a few other captains of 1980s industry, I presume, are, uh, are against this free energy project. They, uh, one of them mentions that it sounds suspiciously like socialism. Veidt tells this group a little bit about himself. He's said to be the smartest man alive, but even he feels stupid sometimes when he has a hard time relating to other people. He says the only historic figure he's ever really felt a kinship with was Alexander of Macedonia or Alexander the Great. But in Veidt's case, the conquest that he envisions that he wants is conquest not of men, but of the evils that beset them. If he can get this free energy thing going, he can get rid of fossil fuels and all that stuff, which 
I mean, to some extent, there will always be a use, even if there is completely free energy. You know, petroleum has its uses regardless. And that's a whole irrelevant discussion. <laughs> By and large, though, I'm in favor of free energy if it ever is possible. Veit points out to these captains of industry that he can buy and sell all of them three times over. And Lee Iacocca tries to sort of glad hand him and says, we get off on the wrong foot. You know, and just then the elevator arrives. The doors open and there's a sinister man in a dark outfit there. He's dressed kind of like a delivery driver, but it's a, it's a completely black outfit with a black cap. And he's carrying a big package, but as soon as the doors open, he drops the package and he pulls out a pistol. And I'm not sure about why he does this, but, but Veidt's secretary, he shoots first, uh, and, 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 uh, really uncommonly gory, even for yeah, this Yeah, goes through her leg. Uh, yeah, very gory. goes through her leg. And then the second shot goes through her hand and like knocks off two of her fingers. Um. Yeah, oh, that's in, that's not in the regular version. You only see the shot to her leg. Okay. Oh, okay. Well, yeah, you get, you get more of this poor secretary. <laughs> maybe, uh, maybe, maybe Vite was, was, well, I, I can't speculate because there's more details that are yet to be revealed, but yeah, the secretary for whatever reason gets shot. So then this, this delivery guy, he shoots Lee Iacocca and a few others. And then Vite, being a retired superhero, he uh, uses his super reflexes and whatnot to uh, clobber this man with uh, some long pole. From, I don't know if it's a torchier or you know, whatever kind of long pole a billionaire's got in his office. And uh, <laughs> Vite covers the guy's mouth to prevent him from biting a suicide pill. He, I think he actually says you know, something to that effect. He's got a suicide pill. Covers his mouth and demands the name of who sent him, but it's too late. This guy is foaming at the mouth already. And that's the first half of the director's cut of The Watchman. Yeah, and I just got to say, if you recall, <laughs> early on in our podcast, we said, oh, we, you know, you really shouldn't have a podcast over an hour. <laughs> so we're halfway through this movie and we're at two hours. <laughs> yeah, we might have to make this one a two-part Thank you.